that I think might be of help for us in understanding why God made our minds as He made them, and that might be of help to us in our spiritual quest and the race that we're running. So I've asked Nelson to put that up on the internet. I don't know how good the recording is, but I think the information is certainly worthwhile, and he said he would have it, try to have it up by Sunday, this being Friday. <clears throat> I have to check and see which day it is when we have Sabbaths intermittently through the week. But uh, that will be up, and I think you on the phone lines might want to give it a listen because I think there was some good information there. And uh, we were planning, as per your schedule, of having another barbecue on Monday out here at the pavilion, but some wanted to go uh, up through the Narrows in Zion on Sunday. Uh, oh, it was going to be on Sunday, but they, they want to go up through the Narrows on Sunday, so we've moved that to Monday. The barbecue will be Monday. And we'll have a time change between now and then, which means the sun will be going down, well, it'll be going down the same time, but it'll be an hour earlier on our clocks. Uh, so we might ought to be sure we're there by around, maybe we should start cooking around 3.30 and eat around 4, because when that sun drops, A, we're going into a Sabbath, and it'd be nice to have the cooking and all done, and B, uh, it starts getting cooler when the sun goes down. But we'll have a fire, and some may want to sit around the fire, I'm sure I will. Uh, anyway, that's for Monday now instead of Sunday, make a note. Also for you out there uh, on the phone, the services each day until Tuesday will be at 11 in the morning. Uh, today, Sabbath, Sunday, and Monday, it's at 11 o'clock. And then on Tuesday, the last great day, it'll again be at 11, but also with a service at 2, local time here. So you can plan ahead a bit for that. I did talk with Linda Davis to some at some length last night up in Michigan, and uh, Tom is having a pretty tough time. Uh, he's throwing up a great deal, and though I'm not really up on all medical uh, prognosis and so on, when you have kidney failure, it's my understanding that very frequently there's throwing up and nausea with it, and uh, he is only submitted himself to dialysis twice a week, and they want him to do it three times. So I don't know what effect that will have long term, but I think, at least in my experience and knowledge, normally with almost complete or complete kidney failure, they require it three times a week. But it, it drains him so badly, he's just refused to go three times. So that may have some effect, and, and uh, I would say Tom was in very heavy need of our prayers and uh, asking God to, to help him and to give Linda the courage and strength she needs because she's a 24-7 caregiver for Tom, and uh, that is very difficult, too, as some of you who have done that kind of care for parents or whatever would certainly know. She has no one to relieve her whatsoever. So it's a very difficult uh, situation for Linda as well. <clears throat> Here's another uh, prayer request. This is uh, 
again turned in by Gloria from about a man in Oregon. His name is Anthony Amaral uh, from Albany, and he has had prostate surgery, and things are looking good from the surgery, but uh, has requested our prayers because the surgery has then caused incontinence. So uh, that's, that's not a fun thing. It kind of reminds me of the old saying, well, the doctor said the operation was a success, but the uh, patient died. Uh, this one not, not quite that grim, and I don't mean to make light of it, but uh, the point is uh, he's having additional difficulties, and what he's gone through is certainly difficult and hard enough, and now there's some side effects from it, so... Uh, keep Anthony in mind in your prayers as well, if you will. A day before yesterday, we were discussing uh, the door that will be opened and no man can shut for two individuals that God is going to use at the end time, both to help the church and then to give a witness against the world. And we haven't gone into their... Uh, job with the churches yet. I'll get to that later on. But we've been establishing, first of all, uh, from Scripture, the types that are involved in the Bible that point to an end-time fulfillment (coughs) of two that God will send to do a job. (coughs) And we can learn a great deal about the job that is ahead for those and for those who are working with them in the end-time church as the final work of God before Christ returns and the millennium begins. So this is a very critical time as that draws very near. But we were discussing John the Baptist and how he came to prepare the way for Christ. Uh, Let's pick it up in Matthew 11 and add something more to this. It came to pass when Emmanuel had made an end of commanding his twelve disciples, he departed to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John the Baptist had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. So John the Baptist was not entirely alone. He had done some (coughs) baptizing, and there were some who were following his ministry and working with him. So even out of prison, he sent two to inquire of what was going on. And as they came, they said to him, Are you he that should come, or do we look for another? So John obviously had told them that there would be a Christ, that he was only there to prepare the way for a greater entity to come, and sent them to find out if Christ was the one. So Emmanuel answered and said to them, Go and show John again these things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And we'll find similar scriptures in Isaiah 35, which were, of course, a prophecy of Christ in his first coming. They are a prophecy of conditions in the millennium, which we're observing a type of today. And they also are of a time here in the end, as we'll clearly see a little later on, where these kinds of miracles will also be done 
uh, in this age before Christ even returns, even as they have been in the past. They were in the early New Testament church through the apostles. Uh, They were even back in times of the original Elijah, which we'll see in a little bit. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. So Christ said, these things are being done, and if you don't take offense at him, you're, you're blessed in that. And of course, the leadership of the Jews and the Romans took exception to him, and ultimately the people around took exception as well, and he was mercilessly crucified. And only a few were blessed, and even those who believed him <laughs> forsook him at the last moment, so that he was all alone. Even his father, because of our sins, forsook him. And he even said so before he died. And as they departed, Emmanuel began to say to the multitude concerning John. This is what I want to get to a little bit to fill in more detail. What went you out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? Did you expect a soft man? Did you expect a... Uh, sophisticated man, a man out of GQ, as we talked about the other day when it said he had uh, leather and camel's hair and, and ate locusts and honey, and some have tried to show that those were really, really fine clothes out of Macy's or Neiman Marcus, or I don't even know what the really good ones are, uh, pennies then, okay, whatever, no, uh, He wasn't finely dressed, and it proves it right here in this account. What did you expect to see? Did you expect to see a man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. So he wasn't a sophisticated man of the world, the kind you'd find in a king's court. Uh, He was rougher, and he was not certainly a reed shaken in the wind. What went you out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, more than a prophet. So not only was John the Baptist considered a prophet by Christ, but more than that even. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, which shall prepare your way before you. So not only was he a prophet in the sense of other prophets, but he had a special mission to do. And that was to prepare the way before Christ. Not every prophet had that uh, selection or denomination to him. Truly I say to you, among them that are born of women, there is not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So even if we're at the lowest table in the kingdom of God... Uh, we will be far greater than John the Baptist was as a human being at his best. But John the Baptist must have been a very rigorous uh, type, and at the same time, he was also a very righteous man. He says in from the days, verse 12, of John the Baptist, until now the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violence take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Now, does that mean in some way that you can be a violent person and enter into the kingdom of God? Some have taken it that way. But I think what he's saying here is you have to be strong. 
against mankind, Satan, and even strong against yourself, not giving in to the desires of the flesh. And I think that is the context of the matter, because he's just been talking about John being a righteous man, none greater on the face of the earth than that particular fulfillment of uh, Elijah. So, it is a difficult thing, and it had certainly been difficult in the Old Testament. He says, until now. See what I mean? Christ had come now, and in some respects, being a part of the kingdom of God would become easier than it had been for those in the Old Testament who did not have God's Spirit indwelling in them. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Samuel, some of those of the Old Testament, had to be very strong in their relationship with God, not having the Spirit in the way that we do. Now David did say, don't take your Spirit from me. So God's Spirit certainly was with David, but he had not been begotten after having been baptized in the way that we have. So he said there's a change here, up until now. For all the prophets and the law prophesied till John. And if you will receive it, this is Elijah, which was for to come. So he says here that the Elijah of the Old Testament was typified by John the Baptist. Now let's see if there's more to that story in Matthew 17. <clears throat> and after six days, Emmanuel took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brings them up in the high mountain apart, away from everyone else, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. So though he had walked up there with them, appearing and being, a human being, uh, this glory came upon him. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now, this was a vision. This wasn't Moses and Elijah coming to life, and they weren't in heaven. No man has ascended except he which came down, not even David, it says in Acts. Then answered Peter and said to Emmanuel, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you will, let us make here three tabernacles, or booths, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So they had been instructed about the millennium, and they knew about the Feast of Booths. So to them, if Moses and Elijah were there, the resurrection must have occurred, and they must be in the millennium. Why else would they mention, let's make booths? Because they thought... Feast of Tabernacles represented the millennium. They had been instructed on that. And while he yet spoke, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear you him. Now, this was a specific vision that was given, very powerful, and the Father in heaven wanted those leaders of the disciples and the founders under Christ of the New Testament church to know of a certainty that Christ himself was the one to look to. Now, up to the, why would he say it? Up to that point, the leaders of the 
Israelite and Jewish community had looked to Abraham. Abraham was their final answer. He was, or Moses, Abraham and Moses, were the greatest authority that they looked to. And here he's saying, no, this is the one you listen to. Now, the others are important. <laughs> you know, they, we're to look back to our ancestors and their lives as we covered. But Christ is the most important figure. Look to him. And we have seen also that John the Baptist was there as a forerunner to prepare the way. He wasn't as great as Christ by any means, but he was there to do a job and prepare for Christ to show up. And he mentions that as we go on down. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Emmanuel came and touched them and said, Rise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Christ only. So the vision ended there. Now, there was something Christ wanted to impart to them out of this beyond what the Father had said in the vision. Look to Christ. That's the most important message there. But he had something to add to it. <coughs> As they came down from the mountain, Emmanuel charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. Now, they wrote about it here, but that was after he had already risen. So this was something, he says, this is just between you and me. Don't take it anywhere else for now. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elijah must come first? Now, if this is about you, why are the scribes talking about Elijah? And Emmanuel answered and said to them, Elijah truly shall first come and restore all things. So he's speaking here in the future. Elijah will come. Christ was there. John the Baptist had already done his preaching, was in prison by now. <coughs> and Christ makes a statement for the future. That Elijah must first come and restore all things. Now, did the original Elijah restore all things? No. Did John the Baptist restore all things? No, he did not. Uh, there were many things that had not even begun to be restored until Christ either restored them or raised them to a higher spiritual level. So he certainly did not restore all things. And Christ speaking in the future here, would indicate that, that there must come someone at the end, as Malachi 4 says, uh, at the time preparing for Christ to return, that Elijah would come and restore all things. So it has not been done by any of those. It is to be done here at the end time. On the other hand, he says, I say to you that Elijah is come already, and they knew him not, but have done to him whatsoever they desired. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So he said, there's already been one here. <laughs> and they put him in jail. They cut his head off. Uh, they did whatever they wanted with John the Baptist, who was a forerunner of Christ. They will do the same thing to the two witnesses, including the last Elijah. They'll kill them in the streets of Jerusalem. So the types continue all the way through. On the other hand, the first Elijah was not killed. He did a work before God, 
that was the original, but when we see the fulfillments later on, the story changes somewhat as it moves forward. But it's still the same type that is used. Uh, and that is true throughout the prophecies. There, each fulfillment of a prophecy <clears throat> takes some different turns, but it's still the same story, basically. Anyway, uh, he shows here that in the end time, as per Malachi 4, that there will be a Moses and Elijah. Why did he not bring up David and Samuel, or why didn't he bring up Abraham? Uh, he used Moses and Elijah because those are the two types that he would use for the end time. And the reason he used them other, rather than others was partially because of the things that they originally did when the original men were doing whatever it was that they did before God. Uh, Abraham did not fulfill uh, the things that have to be done here at the end. What did Moses do? He brought Israel out of sin, and we're going to see that the end-time Moses will bring or help bring the remnant out of the world out of sin. So the Moses type, just on that one thing fits. There are others that do, we'll get to. But so you can see. Um, Let's, uh, let's also throw in Mark on this, the same account, and I won't read it all, but I, there's, a, there's an important verse here in the story that, add, that, uh, excuse me, that Mark adds, chapter 9 of Mark. Uh, here the vision is essentially the same and described by Mark is the same. But in Christ's comment, uh, I think it's verse yeah, 12 I want, and he answered and told them, Elijah verily comes first and restores all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be set as nothing. So Christ would be rejected of all men. He would be counted as nothing. And yet what Christ did here was the greatest thing that's ever been done on the face of the earth by far by far and away above anything that any of the types before him would do. <clears throat> but I think it's interesting that he says the Elijah to come will be treated the same way Christ was. He will be set, he will suffer many things and be set apart as nothing, no value, just as Jeremiah was. So you can expect those things to happen with whomever the Elijah at the end is. Suffer many things and be set as nothing. Now let's go back to 1 Kings 16 and pick up the story of the original. We'll do this because as we understand what the original Elijah went through and what he did, uh, we'll better understand John the Baptist and what happened there, <clears throat> and we will better, by far, understand what must happen, which you and I will observe right here at the end of the age. Now, in 1 Kings 15 first, the story, or 16 it is, I want, uh, 
let's set the, the table a little bit with what was going on in First Kings uh, verse 16. The people that were encamped heard Zimri say, or has conspired, and has also slain the king. Wherefore all Israel made Omri, the captain of the host, king over Israel that day in the camp. So there was an insurrection, uh, a coup, if you will, an assassination, and a new king was set up. <clears throat> and Zimri wasn't a good guy, uh, verse 20, or Omri. The rest of the acts of Zimri, verse 20, and his treason that he worked, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Now, we're going to see Elijah appear here in a moment at a time of treason, at a time when there was a rebellion against the authority in Israel that then was. Verse 21, Then were the people of Israel divided into two parts. Half the people followed Tibna, the son of Gynath, to make him king, and half followed Omri. So here was an insurrection, here was a rebellion, here was a division of Israel into two pieces. And <clears throat> that is the setting then. Uh, verse 25, Omri wrote, e wrought or worked evil in the eyes of the Eternal and did worse than all that were before him and walked in the way of Jeroboam. Verse 30, and Ahab, the son of Omri, the one who followed Omri, who was evil, did evil in the sight of the Eternal above all that were before him. So, here was a very evil man. And it came to pass, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. So not only was he a bad son of Omri, but he also married a woman of Baal. So Jezebel is introduced here, and she'll be uh, very important to the story and the life of Elijah. Uh, so Ahab raised up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, and Ahab made a grove. Uh, they stripped the limbs off of trees, and they were then used as upright phaluses of worship. And Ahab did more to provoke the eternal God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. So here the table is pretty well set. Uh, sin, wretchedness, Baal worship in Israel that came as a result of a rebellion, uh, a coup, an assassination, and treason. Now it's interesting Elijah has not been mentioned up to this point in the Scriptures. So in the middle of all this trouble, chapter 17, Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, is there a bomb in Gilead? Why did God use that particular town? Elijah was from Gilead and said to Ahab, So here's somebody we haven't heard of before, and he comes to King Ahab and makes a statement. It's like he just kind of came out of nowhere. Who is this? Who's Elijah? You know, we haven't heard of him before. Uh, he's, he's a new man on the scene. Tells where he was from. And he says, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Now, Elijah 
in Hebrew means, my God is Jehovah, or Yah is God. So Elijah was sent with a God-given name because his life and what he did would show that Baal is not God, but God is God. And we'll see that played out shortly here. So my God is Jehovah. And the first thing he does is announce there will be no rain. Now, he must have had some instruction from God, I can only say, uh, in order to stand up and make a proclamation like that. Your local weatherman doesn't say that. He says it may rain Thursday, uh, or it may not rain Friday. But he doesn't tell you that when I say it'll rain, it'll rain, and when I say it won't rain, it won't. That's a, that's a pretty powerful statement to make. So he comes out of nowhere and uh, comes on pretty strong, wouldn't you say? What did Christ say? Did you expect a reed shaken in the wind? No. Be no rain. And the word of the Eternal came to him, saying, Get you hence, and turn yourself eastward, and hide yourself by the book Cherith that is before Jordan. <clears throat> so he was in the promised land. And after he had made that statement, God told him, Now go away out into the wilderness, away from here. And it shall be that you shall drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he sent him out to a brook in the wilderness and said, There's water there for you to drink, but there's no food to speak of. To speak of means there's none there to talk about. So the ravens will bring you food. Now the ravens go out and they get things and put them in their beak and take them and put them down in the mouths of their little wide open baby's mouths and drop it in. That is normal for ravens to do with their babies. But it is certainly abnormal for them to do it with people. <laughs> I don't know exactly how that worked, whether they flew over and dropped it in his lap or he had to stick his head back and open it and they dropped it right in. Uh, we can speculate and it doesn't mean anything, it doesn't matter. But God had told him, I will take care of you. Only by direction and miracle from God would a raven come close enough to bring food to Elijah. And Elijah probably ate more than baby birds, so I don't know how many ravens were involved and how busy they had to be, <clears throat> but they provided enough food for Elijah. So right off the bat, we see that a miracle will be performed in Israel, and we see also that a miracle will be done to sustain the life of Elijah. Otherwise, he would have starved to death out there. So he went and did according to the word of the Eternal, for he went and dwelt by the brook Shirith that is before Jordan. Sure enough, the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning and bread and flesh in the evening. Where did they get the bread and the meat? I don't know, but somehow God saw to it that they were had a supply. Uh, why didn't he just invent a cow for Elijah? You know, or cause carrots to grow, or, you know, God could do those things. But he had a reason in doing it a certain way that would appear as a miracle from God. Now, had he created a a beef cow, 
uh, people could have said, well, that just wandered in, you know, off the range. It got loose. No, this was done differently. And it came to pass, after a while, that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Now, God is working some things here, see. Elijah, when he first comes on the scene, says there's not going to be any rain unless I say so. And then God sends him out so he can drink from a creek, and then the creek dries up because there's no rain. So it seems like he's kind of working against himself here, right? As far as the physical man. The word of the Eternal came to him, saying, Arise, get you to Zarephath, which belongs to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain you. So he goes from crows bringing him food to a widow woman who was to sustain him. And we'll find that woman didn't have anything to sustain him with. So quite a few things are beginning to happen here that shows God's involvement. Now, is the church depicted in the end time as a widow? Micah 4, your king is dead, your counselor has perished. Uh, seven women at one point will take hold of one man. Uh, again, at some point, you will be called married instead of not married. There are quite a few scriptures that depict end-time, re end-time spiritual Israel without having a husband as being a widow and needing care. Any, we begin to see glimpses already of some of the things that God says about the end-time Elijah and Moses. Uh, well, we read the day before yesterday in Revelation 11 that during their time, uh, if they said so, there would be no rain wherever they said. So the original brings that out and is repeated in Revelation 11. And here he says, I'm not going to sustain you with birds anymore, but I'm going to send you to a widow. She'll take care of you. <clears throat> I'm sure that the local pundits would have said, Oh, Elijah's over there with that widow. I wonder what's going on there. And she was going to fetch it. Oh, wait a minute. I, I missed a verse. So he rose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow woman was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Fetch me, I pray you, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. Not only had the brook dried up, but he had had to travel. And he was quite thirsty by then. And she was going to fetch it. She was a widow who had a serving uh, attitude. As she was going, he called to her and said, Bring me, I pray you, a morsel of bread in your hand. So he wanted water and bread. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel. I don't even have a little cake to bring you. Just a little bit of meal and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. This is all we have. It's all we have left. We'll enjoy a few bites and die of starvation. Do we not see a church today that is in a spiritual famine, as Amos 8 or 9, I, I get those two confused, says that there will be a famine not of bread but of the Word of God in the land. 
and they'll search for it east to west to north to south, and the only place it leaves out is the southwest where the Word of God may be found. <clears throat> so, there was very little food there available. Uh, and Elijah said to her, Fear not, go and do as you have said, but bring me thereof a little cake first. And bring it to me, and after, make for you and for your son. Now, there's several things going here. God tells the end-time builders of the latter temple to fear not, to be strong, to be of good courage, and work. Here, he tells her, put the work first. Take care of the prophet of God first, and then you eat. Now, what did Christ tell us. Be willing to forsake father, mother, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, lands, homes, whatever, and come and follow me, and I will provide for you. So, the end time message and the message of Christ was already being laid out here in physical form for us to take note of. So, in a time of great famine for this woman, Elijah was going to provide food. Now, what does Christ tell us in Isaiah 55? Come, eat milk and honey without money. Come and I will take care of you. I will provide all you need. There will be villages, Zechariah 2, that form Jerusalem, and much men and cattle there. <clears throat> so in a time... When this nation is going into physical famine, pestilence, and the sword, and captivity, as per Ezekiel 5, God is going to pull out a small remnant of the widow and feed it, and give it everything it needs, both spiritually and physically. Verse 14, For thus says the eternal God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail, until the day the Eternal sends rain upon the earth. We are today in a time of spiritual famine and drought. We are also suffering famine and drought in parts of this country, a very severe drought. And at the same time, we're also suffering, on the other end, floods. Now, if you're going to have famine and pestilence, it means no crops, very little food, and bodies deteriorate and they're more easily susceptible to disease and so on. And then if you have a lot of dead bodies laying around, then you have more germs and one thing piles on another until the population dies off. And that's what we're facing in this country in the coming months and years. Maybe I should say mostly months. I don't know whether 12 or 24 or what, but very soon now we can see the handwriting on the wall. But God says he will take care of his during that period of time. So here we're talking about a period of three and a half years, we'll see, that there was no rain in the area. And yet, Elijah and the widow were taken care of. So he said, put the work first, and God will take care of you. That's what we have to do as well. 
but what God is doing ahead of ourselves. Be dedicated, be committed, be ready to do whatever God calls upon us to do here in the end. And it won't uh, fail until God sends rain. Now what does he tell us? He says that pray, or that we are to pray for the former and the latter rains that he will send us in the first month. So he's going to bless the church with rain, both physical and spiritual, while the rest of the land is suffering from drought. This is a very specific account and very specific prophecy here. We know it's prophecy because it's carried forth in uh, all the prophecies, specifically Malachi and then Luke and Mark and Matthew, and even in Romans, as we'll see, and in Revelation. So what is laid here as a background and a base for events to come is very important for us to consider, and I'm drawing in what is happening and will happen to the church. I'm not going to take the time right here to go forward and show you all those prophecies. We've seen them before, but I'm mentioning a few as we go to jog our minds as to how this story fits the prophecies for today. Uh, Verse 15, And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah, and she and he and her house did eat many days, or a full year is what my margin says is a better translation. So they ate a full year from that barrel of meal that was empty. The barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Eternal, which he spoke by Elijah the Tishbite. Now doesn't he say in Zechariah 4 that the two witnesses will feed the church the golden oil, empty it out from them? So they'll feed the church in the end time during the latter temple. Okay, let's go on then. Verse 17, It came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick. And his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. He'd actually come to the point of breathlessness. Wasn't breathing at all. And she said to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O you man of God? Are you come to me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? Now, she'd been eating from a barrel that went not empty for a year, and oil that was there in the cruise all that time, and then adversity came, trouble came. Her son died, and she thought, this is a setup. You came here, and you did all these things, and you're just setting me up to slay me and to slay my son and to make me feel guilty for all my past sins. What did we read? Elijah would be of no consequence or no value, that he would be set set as nothing as Christ was. And here this woman is doing that very thing. It was done on a larger stage as well. Uh, by those who diminished what Elijah was there to do, as we'll see. But here's the first instance of it, really. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up into a loft where he abode and laid him upon his own bed. I assume that was the son's bed. 
And he cried to the Eternal and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? So he repeated what the widow had told him he had done, and it must have made him kind of take pause a little bit. And, you know, is this, is, is her accusation right? Is what she's saying about me correct, or is it wrong? So he took his cause to God. <clears throat> now, whether he was just repeating that, or really wondered, and perhaps he did really wonder, but it didn't change his faith in God. Now, we see in James uh, 5, where when we're sick, we're to call on the elders of the church and to be anointed, and the prayer of faith will heal the sick. And there, James uses the example of Elijah once again, where he said, you know, he said it won't rain for three and a half years, and it didn't. So the prayer of faith can do much. And the prayer, the fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man avails much, Christ said. So Elijah might have questioned whether those who were accusing him were correct or not, but at the same time, he retained his faith in God and showed that by his actions. Verse 21, And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Eternal and said, O Lord my God, I pray you, let this child's soul come into him again. So in his own mind, he thought, No, I don't think that what this widow said is correct. You didn't bring me here to oversee the death of her son and to make her have to answer for all her past sins. Now, is this preparing the way for Christ again? What did John the Baptist do? He prepared the people for Christ to come and say, Your sins are forgiven. He did not come to remind them of their sins and make them feel guilty. He came to forgive sins and save the world from sin. Now, he told some who were still sinning about their sins, like the Pharisees. But that wasn't the overall purpose. God, He was sent here on purpose to save sinners, the Father said very clearly. So, Elijah was here not to bring this woman's past sins up, but to show the majesty and the glory of God. So he stretched himself three times and asked God to restore the child's life. Verse 22, And the Eternal heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. So God backed Elijah against the widow's accusations and actually raised the dead. And we'll find in the New Testament that Christ raised the dead, Elisha, also who followed Elijah, raised the dead, and that is an important thing to consider, and we'll get to that eventually. What about the Elijah-Elisha uh, combination? And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother, and Elijah said, See, your son lives. Now, we've already seen from some examples I named in Scripture, that the church is depicted here in the end time as a widow. He uses her as a virgin as well in different places. There are different analogies used to the church, called her trees in places. 
But here he's depicting her as a widow, and some scriptures show that same analogy in the Old Testament. Uh, but Elijah was sent to revive the sun. Now, Christ says that we come to the place that it seems like our hope is gone, that no one will come to save, that this is going on way too long. How is this going to happen? And some give up. Some feel defeated. They don't endure to the end. But these conditions, he said, would occur. And that we were to labor and travail to bring forth Christ. To, to us, a child is given. A son is born. Isaiah 7. Or 8, I guess. 7 or 8. 7, I think it is. Yeah, 7. Anyway, we are put in the same position, and God says we will be delivered, that Christ will survive. He will live. Did not Herod, in the time of John the Baptist, try to kill Christ by having all babies of a certain age killed to be sure they got him? So he was as good as dead in the kingdom of Rome, had they succeeded in finding him, but God told his parents to get him out of there. So he was saved from that death and destruction, as was Moses. And Moses was a type of Christ as well, drawn out of the water. So here, we are seeing laid out for us, way back in history, a woman, the church, who is has the one son, Christ, and it appears that we are without hope. There is no bomb in Gilead. Elijah was from Gilead, remember. There is none to save us. We're sick. We're dying. But God saves. God will resurrect the church. Your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Eternal in your mouth is truth. So at some point, I think we're going to see something such as this depicted. Elijah will be questioned. He will be set as nothing. And a revival will come. And the church, the remnant, are going to know that he is indeed a man of God. So the story is all laid out from us, and I think we're going to see all of this happen again in the future. More in detail than John the Baptist did. Again, he didn't restore all things, and he didn't do all these things that Elijah did. But Christ did say, another Elijah is coming to do those things. Chapter 18. And it came to pass, after many days, that the word of the eternal came to Elijah in the third year. Now, uh, where is that? I saw that there's, there was a, a gap in time here after Elijah and the widow. So after, it came to pass after many days that the word of the eternal came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So this had to be about three and a half years later. Well, let's see, he was with the widow for a year, so maybe two and a half years after that episode, because the rain uh, was gone for three and a half years. So, we don't know what Elijah was doing during that period of time, uh, but God had another mission for him, a particular thing to do. 
uh, two and a half years later. So, he went to show himself to Ahab, and there was a sore famine in Samaria. Well, it hadn't rained in three and a half years. You bet it was a sore famine. And Ahab called Obadiah, which was the governor of his house. Now, Obadiah feared the eternal greatly. So, here was an evil king with a servant faithful to God in his house. Uh, We see that throughout. Moses was drawn out by... Uh, Pharaoh's daughter, and grew up in the house of Pharaoh, and interacted with Pharaoh, and even had uh, Ephraim and Manasseh from an Egyptian wife. Uh, Joseph was sent to work with Pharaoh as well. Uh, Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, uh, There's several different situations like that. John the Baptist with Herod. So I would assume that just as uh, the original Elijah was sent to Ahab for a purpose, to work with him and against him, really. Uh, so was John the Baptist with Herod, and I think we'll see a same picture in the end time as well. However, that works out. <clears throat> and there are some clues which we'll probably get to. So, here was a servant of God in the court of a very evil king. For it was so, in verse 4, when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Eternal, that Obadiah took an hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave and fed, fed them with bread and water. So Obadiah saw that the prophets of God were being abused and misused and took a hundred of them and hid them and kept them alive. So we have a woman here, Jezebel, who had cut off the true prophets of God. Jezebel was not a nice lady, uh, nor was she in ensuing fulfillments, uh, nor even in Revelation 2 with Smyrna, I mean with Thyatira, where she led them astray from the, the Word of God. Uh, let's see, and Ahab said to Obadiah, go into the land, to all the fountains of water, and to all brooks, Peradventure we may find grass to save the horses and mules alive, that we may not lose all the beasts. So, sore famine, and they were in danger of losing all their animals. So they divided the land between them to pass throughout. <clears throat> Ahab went one way, and Obadiah another. And as Obadiah was in the way, behold, Elijah met him, and he knew him, and fell on his face and said, Are you that, my lord, Elijah? So here we see a true servant of God being sent to Elijah. Do you think that people will come, and perhaps true ministers of God and servants of God, to Elijah in the end time? Will they be part of the remnant that comes to uh, Joshua and Zerubbabel, another type that we'll get to in more detail later? Moses and Elijah, Joshua and Zerubbabel, uh, And what did, I did say Moses and Elijah, didn't I? And he answered him and said, Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, What have I what have I sinned that you would deliver your servant into the hand of Ahab to slay me? If I if I bring news of Elijah, he's going to cut my head off. As the eternal lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they said he is not there, he took an oath of the kingdom and nation that they found you not. Said made them swear he's not there. Well, at this point, Ahab was blaming the 
famine on Elijah. And he wanted his head. Will they blame the lack of rain in the days of the two witnesses on the witnesses, where God says they can shut the water off and want their head? The parallels are quite striking. Verse 11, And now you say, Go, tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. <laughs> he says, Suck it up and go tell him, I'm here. Ooh. And it shall come to pass, as soon as I am gone from you, that the Spirit of the Eternal shall carry you where I know not. And soon when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he shall slay me. But I, your servant, fear the Eternal from my youth. Was it not told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel slew the prophets of the Eternal, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifty in the cave and fed them with bread and water? So he says, I'm not here to destroy you. I'm not here to hurt you. I think it is interesting here that a mention is made of the Spirit of the Eternal picking him up and carrying him somewhere. We'll see that some more, and we'll see it in Ezekiel. And it makes me wonder what we'll see in Revelation 11. <laughs> No, it doesn't make me wonder. It gives me a very strong clue, I think. Uh, verse 14, And now you say, Go tell your Lord, Behold, Elijah is here, and he shall slay me. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. Don't worry, I'm not going to disappear. Uh, God sent me, and I'm going to go see Ahab. So go ahead and go tell him. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And it came to pass, when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Are you he that troubles Israel? Are you the one that's cut the rain off? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Eternal and have followed Balaam. Now therefore, send and gather to me all Israel to Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal, 450, and the prophets of the groves, 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. So apparently 850 total. He said, descend. But no, I haven't troubled Israel. I've troubled you because of your sins and your following Baal. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together to Mount Carmel. So obviously, uh, he must have explained to Ahab that, all right, you think I troubled Israel, and I'm saying God's wrath is on you and your disobedience. Let's test that. Let's see. So he sent and got them all. And I, Elijah came to all the people and said, How long halt you between two opinions? Now, if you go through the book of Ezekiel, you'll find over and over and over again, Ezekiel using the same phrase, And they shall know that I am the Eternal. They shall know that I am the Eternal. After almost everything Ezekiel says, that expression is used. Or what God directs him to do, he says, we'll show that. So here you have a people who rebelled along with the leaders and were literally following Baal. And if you 
are not careful, here in the end time, you might find yourself following Baal as well. We find uh, a remnant of Sardis. We find uh, Laodicea, who really are following after their father, the devil. Because who is more self-righteous? Who thinks he knows everything more than Satan, the devil? So a self-righteous, I'm okay attitude is really a satanic attitude. And we have a ministry out there in what is remains of Worldwide Church of God who are proclaiming that they're the only ones. We're the only Philadelphians. We're the only this. The rest of you are those self-righteous Laodiceans. So really, they've taken on the attitude of Satan. And would God spew that? Yes, he would. And are they following God fully in righteousness when self-righteousness has replaced true righteousness? I think Malachi 4 shows there is a problem within the ministry of the overall church of God today. And that is going to have to be dealt with. Not only the prophet's but also the people, he says. He addressed them all. How long are you going to halt between two opinions? If the eternal be God, follow him. But if Baal be God, then follow him. And the people answered him, not a word. They knew they'd been had. They knew that they had been fudging over on the Baal side. Just as I think we all realize, we have not turned fully to God. Not in the way that God wants us to worship Him with our whole heart. We are partly influenced by Satan and the world, and we have to renew zeal. We have to get rid of our own depiction of ourselves as righteous and realize as the sinner in the story of the publican and the sinner, lower our heads and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's not what I see in the churches of God today. What I see is almost everyone standing and proclaiming, we're A-OK, we're Philadelphia, we're going to safety, and the rest of you lay the sins are going into the lake, into the tribulation. Pretty much the same as what Elijah was facing here. Verse 22, Then said Elijah to the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Eternal, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. That's an interesting statement there. I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Eternal. We'll get to Isaiah later, but I think I'll, since we're here, I'll flip back there and read that to you, because it is a prophecy of the church in the end time, beginning in chapter 40 with the, the uh, beginnings of the latter temple, and we are here discussing in this series where Philadelphia will come from, because it does not exist in an organized way that can be seen today, even as Elijah just sort of came out of nowhere. No one expected that. Anyway, he says here in Isaiah 45, uh, 41, verse 25, I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come from the east. And shall he, he shall call upon my name, and he shall come upon princes as upon mortar, 
and as the potter treads clay. So someone who has been in the north will at some point come from the east. If he comes from the east, he's going where? To the west. Okay? Who has declared from the beginning that we may know? There's some things that haven't been said that need to be said. And before time, before certain things happen ahead of time, that we may say, he is righteous. Is there someone who will come claiming that there is a righteous to come? Not that he himself is righteous, but there is a righteous one to come. No, there is none that shows. Yes, there is none that declares. There is none that hears your words. So he's starting to imply here that we see no answers anywhere we look. And even when someone comes from the north and then from the east to the west and proclaims it, that no one will listen. The first, okay, one shows up ahead of the other. The first shall say to Zion, Behold, behold them. So one will come ahead of time declaring others, too. Uh, I will give to Jerusalem one that brings good tidings. Now we're back in Elijah's day. Everybody else is of the prophets of Baal, but Elijah alone was the only remaining prophet of God. Now, Obadiah was a faithful man, but he was not a prophet of God as Elijah was. So as far as leadership is concerned, God says, There is no one, but I will send you one that brings good tidings, that's going to tell you of good news that shall be. For I beheld, and there was no man even among them, and there was no counselor. Micah said he died, Herbert Armstrong. In the story of Hezekiah and Herbert Armstrong overlap in the 30s of Isaiah, ending in Isaiah 39, and then a voice cries in the wilderness. John the Baptist, we'll see, said he was a voice crying in the wilderness. So the type of Elijah John the Baptist is there. But he says, Behold, and there was no man, even among them, no counselor, that when I asked of them could answer a word. Nobody knows what's coming. Everybody thinks we're still going to at some point go to Petra and then the tribulation is going to start. They have no clue of what's going on. Behold, they are all vanity, their works are nothing. All the preach printing of uh, the gospel and all the preaching on the radio and the television or whatever means they use is all of nothing. Their molten images are wind and confusion. So even the works that they are doing, God says, are vain, that their molten images actually are idols. They make an idol of Herbert Armstrong. They make an idol of what it is that they think he was to do and failed at, so they must do it. Now, how is that an idol? Well, that isn't what God's doing. God has spewed it apart, and he said, even to the two witnesses who will appear on the scene, don't you bother with the world, go to the church and measure it. 
So these are all working at contrary purposes to God if right now they are trying to preach the gospel to the world and fulfill Matthew 24, 14. That is not what God is doing. He wants people right now to be repenting and changing and growing and turning to Him so that He can then turn His face to them. The church of God today is not qualified to, nor equipped to, prepared to, or given a commission to do any work in the world today. Matthew 24, 14 is written to the two who will be given a door that no one can shut to do that very thing after they get done repairing the church. And we'll see that laid out as well. So Isaiah 41 is saying the same thing of the end-time church and the end-time Elijah that Elijah said of himself at that time. I, even I only, remain a prophet of the eternal. Now, we're going to see later that there were 7,000 people who had not been bowed to Baal, but he was the only prophet who was still serving God. Then said Elijah to the people, oh, I already read that, verse 23, let's see, I'm out of time. This is a good place to stop because he's about to start a chapter-long scenario here, which is quite interesting. So we'll stop right there and pick it up tomorrow, God willing, and uh, see some more of the original Elijah and what he did.